Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He continues to do the heavy lifting on these episodes, and I continue to be grateful. You can learn more at IdealVideoStrategies.com. Also, check out the two animated videos on my Wall of Awful model that have been posted to Jessica McCabe's How to ADHD channel on YouTube. They're amazing. The links, of course, are in the show notes. And finally, I'm nailing down the details for the summer session of the ADHD Essentials online parent coaching groups, and we'll officially announce them next week. So stay tuned. This is episode 73. Today, we're talking to Cameron Gott. Cameron is a giant in the world of ADHD coaching, and not just because he's so tall. Because he's been working in this field for over 15 years. Cameron first appeared way back in episode 7, talking about his book, Curious Accountability. And he continues to appear on the web at CameronGott.com. As you might expect from a guest of Cameron's caliber, this one's a doozy. It's chock full of important ideas about ADHD and parenting. You might want to listen to it more than once. I know I have. In today's episode, we talk about closing the gap between kids with ADHD and their neurotypical peers, how having ADHD is like trying to watch a play from on stage, ADHD in relationships, and the power of curiosity. All right, let's get rolling. So Cameron, welcome back. You're my first repeat guest. That's I'm pretty excited about that, Brendan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be, is there a pla? Is there? I'm I'm looking for a wall or a plaque of like return. I might have to get something made. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll get some T-shirts or something. Or yeah, man, that, that would be good. <laughs> a button. I don't know. I don't have. A, <laughs> I haven't thought of it. But it's. I'm I'm happy to have you back. I'm glad that uh, that you're my first repeat guest. You're a luminary in the field, and we've sort of been talking prior to recording just about the role that ADHD plays in, in lifelong challenges and you work primarily with adults. So you're starting to work with people who are in their forties around these challenges on this podcast. We're aimed at adults and families and kids. So we have the potential to get 12, 13 year olds pointed in a, in a healthier direction sooner, right? As opposed to the guy who's 40 and he's like, Oh man, I have ADHD. What do I do with that? we're looking at maybe transferring some of these skills down to some younger kids so we can course correct them earlier. Yeah. Sort of when I work with uh, leaders and professionals and the, and they typically have a recent diagnosis, right? So this world of uh, new information, you know, all these, all these question marks and, and um, conundrums that they've had over their lifespan, you know, they're getting some answers here at age 45 or 55. And Speaking to you, you know, we do similar work, right? We're both coaches, but your guests get a chance to look at uh, sort of you know, the future 
um, in the sense of that I'm working with their, the, the future version of their kids. You know, it's, it's sort of dawned on me this, how ADD can have such an impact around making key connections. And really the key connection between sort of lifelong challenge and the actual challenges of ADHD. Mm-hmm. And even when my clients come and, and they've hired me as an ADD coach, right? So there's some element of I need to address this, but still when they get on the call with me, they're still not making that connection. And that's the, just the nature of the beast. And because of that whole cause and effect thing, people with ADD tend to live at effect and it's really difficult to wind your way back to cause, right? To causation. It really impacts our ability to generate accurate data in the moment. Mm-hmm. Starting it much earlier, this whole process of generating better awareness and understanding how your ADD shows up, you can really, I think, plot a different course yeah. um, and different outcomes over that lifespan. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I work with the occasional adult as well, and, and I often get, well, isn't that everybody? Like, no, <laughs> it's not everybody. Not everybody struggles to start. Not everybody forgets what they were at to the supermarket for and comes back with a whole bunch of stuff they didn't need and nothing that they were going there to buy because they didn't use a list. There's lots of people who are executing in a way that to us looks like perfection. This is another idea that I've been playing with for a while now is we sort of look at it when we're in high school, we're looking at the performance of our, of our classmates. When we're at work, we look at the performance of our coworkers and we're like, how are they operating perfectly all the time? And it's, we have executive functioning challenges and that's not their perfect. That's their good, but it looks like perfect to us because we struggle in those areas of remembering to do our homework or processing when the meetings are and putting them in our calendars. Because we struggle in those areas, we see that gap and have trouble with it. And so we're very perceptive of the gap, but we're not perceptive of how to close the gap. Right. And I think that's one of the greatest frustrations of having ADD, right? It's the whole, I know what's going on, right? I see it, but I'm not sure how to fix it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you want a lesson in compound interest? You have two 13-year-olds. There's a gap, right? When I was in high school, the gap I saw was actually in middle school. Heading into high school, the gap started to widen, mm-hmm. right? And it's a compound interest problem is that you have more opportunities. Uh, I've always said ADD is a learning, it's, it's a learning disorder because it creates gaps in learning. Absolutely. Of developing awareness, you take learning and then you apply it. Well, if you've got uh, challenges around applying learning, mm-hmm. which is what ADD is all about, that gap starts to widen. And the gap that you see between two 15-year-olds versus two 45-year-olds, it, it can be pretty big. Yeah, absolutely. That said, the, the thing I want to illustrate for your listeners, I don't want to create panic. Um, I've worked with a lot of people who have had success over the years despite their ADHD. And the qualities that I see is really persistence, right? Persistence and resilience and continuing to try. So, you know, don't give up. There is, there is hope. Um, it's just 
I want to come here and say, you know, what you're doing with your kids is great to encourage them, again, to develop that awareness of what this is, as you do with your, the wall of awful, right? Of right. understanding what it is and how it works so you can yeah. uh, find ways to, um, to navigate over it, around it, through it, and deal with it. Yeah. And, and the simple fact that people are listening to this podcast means that they're taking those steps. They're doing the things they need to either navigate their kids' ADHD or potentially their own ADHD. And, and the fact that they're listening to the, this podcast is an example of the doing those things. And related to that not wanting to add the panic, if you're doing those things, a byproduct of that, intentionally or unintentionally, is that you're narrowing the gap between your kid and their peers. And so that gap is not going to expand as much as it might otherwise expand as they get older. And it's, it's about awareness. It's also about really clear, direct instruction. Like one of, the, one of the examples I use is, and this is an example of the gap and how we can narrow it. There are plenty of kids out there who can watch mom or dad do the laundry and then they know how to do the laundry, right? Like they magically figured it out. That's not the experience of the ADHD kid. The ADHD kid can watch mom or dad do the laundry and now they're just like, cool, mom and dad did the laundry. It doesn't mean I know how to do mine. It just means that I saw them do it. With an ADHD kid, we have to really spell it out. We have to teach them. We're hitting this button because of this reason and we're putting this much soap in for this reason and we put the clothes in in this way because blah, 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 blah. And we have to walk them through it and then we have to walk them through it again. And then we have to let them do it and we have to watch and correct whatever did or didn't go right. And then we let them do it on their own. And then if it's been a little while since they last did the laundry, we back up and we make sure we at least watch them do it because they might forget. And that's a small example, but it's, it's, it's the way ADHD learning works. It just takes a little more time. Unless, of course, it doesn't, in which case you're fine because sometimes it doesn't. But if it does, we want to be aware of it. You're illustrating the importance of appreciating the underlying processes at work. Yeah. That's what I do with my adult clients is to start to look at and appreciate the processes that are work around task identification and completion. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that what I consider emotion or drama, drama tends to get in the way of appreciating process. Mm -hmm. The analogy I like is, you know, we go to the theater to watch a play, right? And we're, we're watching from the theater, the audience, and we're going and looking out at um, the stage where the drama is occurring. So there's a distance there. We recognize that there are the actors up there being a part of the drama, and we're appreciating it from a distance. With ADD, it's often that it's very difficult to get away from that drama. In fact, you're kind of on the stage, in the drama, <laughs> right? In the emotion of the moment, in the frustration. And you can't get that separation from that drama to generate good awareness around the actual processes about getting things done. Yeah. And it's, a, it's just a fascinating thing that I, I appreciate what you said earlier, Brendan, about people just listening to this are improving that, uh, that separation, right? Getting good data, good knowledge. Things like emotional intelligence. When you actually think about and consider and ponder emotional intelligence, 
your emotional intelligence actually goes up just to consider it. So the same thing here of like developing that, those observing skills, paying attention, distinguishing, you know, the drama from reality or the drama from uh, life. We can kind of get off the stage and into the audience a bit and watch this play out and say, oh, I see that when I do this, I get this response from my mom, right? And it creates this drama moment. And see, there, then, then you're seeing kind of the whole process play out. And how can I nip that in the bud, right? How can I change course? Uh, how can I regain control of the levers, you know, drive this machine as opposed to driving it off the track all the time? And even, am I getting the result that I actually want? I've noticed that when I do this, my mom gets all upset and agitated. And in the short term, that's kind of exciting and full of dopamine for me. Oh, yeah, man. Because I like to get my mom going. But in the long term, it's damaging my relationship with my mom. Or in the long term, it means that mom makes a dinner that I'm not excited about because it's faster because we'd spent an hour bickering and arguing and and now it's like mac and cheese for dinner as opposed to meatloaf or whatever so are my short-term exciting moments my short-term dopamine bursts are they serving my long-term interests i mean that's that's a constant struggle with us adhd folks we're always trying to resist the short-term dopamine in favor of the long-term goal right because and again that that now not now perception of time Right? It's really hard to, to appreciate next week, Thursday at three o'clock. Yeah. But I just spoke with a CEO who admitted that she gets upset with her staff and she gets angry. But in that moment of anger, there's a little bit of a sense of control in her life because that dopamine is there and things are clear. Mm-hmm. When other times it's a bit of overwhelm and confusion. And I can see that with parents too kind of pulling out of the kid's side, mom and dad might be doing that too. And it's, it's quicker. It's easier. I, I won't pretend that I don't use that sometimes, but I use it as a tool. At the moment, I'm a principal um, of a private Islamic school, but I'm sure I confuse the students because when, especially in the upper school kids, the ones that are like sixth, seventh and eighth grade, because when I talk to them as a unit, I'm loud and I'm directive and I'm like, this is what you need to do. Rah, 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 right. Cause there's a whole bunch of them and I need to be using that command voice. Then they come into my office for a one-on-one meeting about how they're doing something wrong, and I'm, I'm a coach, right? I'm like, so what's going on? Okay, how come? And I'm not angry, and I'm not frustrated, and I'm not scary. I'm very calm, cool, and collected, and caring. And I've had a couple kids look at me like, what is, you're, huh? Like, you're not the principal that I thought that you were. Why are you doing this in such a different way? And it's because in one environment, you have to be that commanding person and you have to take that control. And in another environment, you have a little more space. But I can see parents, especially getting caught up in the commanding side, that controlling side and letting that carry over into those smaller moments that you want to be more open with. And it's sometimes that dynamic sets up where it seems like the yelling is the only way your child will respond. Right moving my kids to, to bedtime, <laughs> I, I can definitely identify with that. And then that's when we need to figure out new skills, right? Because yeah, to me, unless you're going to hit your kid, yelling is the nuclear option, right? Like that's, you, there's nowhere to go after that. 
So we have to find stuff in between yelling and wherever we are. Yeah, it, this reminds me of just a, a class I teach for, for the ADD partner in a relationship. And I think that's another thing that people have some misunderstanding or, or lack of awareness around is that, well, the issue is the ADD. And so it's the person with the ADD that needs to change. And as you said, it's a dynamic. ADD impacts relationships. So you have the individual with ADD, but you also have that person that they're working with, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a coworker, whether it's uh, a parent. And how you engage is another key part. If you're bringing drama, you're going to get drama back. Mm -hmm. Even an example from, from my life, right? Something I'm learning shuts me down, or I, I guess I'm remembering that it shuts me down. It's been a little while since I've navigated this, but if my wife is upset or angry with me and the, it's the first time I interact with her after an extended period of not interacting, right? So first thing in the morning or I'm coming home from wherever I've been, if she leads with anger, frustration, something like that, it shuts me right down. And I do the thing that is being asked of me, but I kind of pull back and emotionally I'm, I'm shut down and that kind of stuff. As opposed to if she's equally annoyed with me, but I come home or wake up and she's like, hi, how are you? And then she tells me what's driving her crazy. Then I'm able to stay more emotionally balanced and I'm able to get that thing accomplished and also the next thing that I need to get accomplished because I haven't shut down. So that's, that's in there too. And that's as, much, that's as much about how my wife interacts with me as it is about how my ADHD is affecting our relationship. And then goes back to that if, if you have perspective, if the players mm -hmm. can sort of like notice how they interact, what works for the individual with ADD and what doesn't. Right. Again, as you said, it's that uh, you'll do it, but then shut down and it's difficult to go on to the next thing. Yeah. Right. But you're well aware of the trigger. Right. And you guys have developed a workaround. Yeah. And I, some of that is that I have a pretty solid emotional intelligence on my end, right? Yeah. And that sometimes plays an undermining role, which doesn't seem like it would, but it can. Because if you're the spouse that has the solid emotional intelligence, but you're not communicating with your, with your spouse about what you've noticed about them, and you're kind of navigating and managing and all that kind of stuff, their emotional state without them knowing it you're not helping them to grow and to learn and you're not giving them the skills that they need because at some point you're going to be tired and your emotional intelligence isn't going to be working as much as it needs to and you're not going to be able to compensate. I, I like the, the idea of, I think, an, an idea for, your, for both your, you know, your audience, your parents, but also the kids too, is to, to keep in mind this, what I've really discovered in the last couple of years is the power of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And scientists have curiosity, right? It's this healthy gap between what you do know and uh, what you don't know. Right. Yeah, that's what we talked about the last time you were on was that curious accountability stuff. So I'm glad that we're heading in this direction. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, I, I, I wrote a book on accountability and I thought it was all about accountability, but it's sort of a, as I've been working with it, it's sort of realizing curiosity can be a great attender. Mm-hmm right? A way to attend without uh, a sense of urgency or to kind of really, you know, moving out of our limbic, out of that fight flight area. And so with curiosity, again, think about a scientist 
a scientist is trying to figure out things that they don't know mm -hmm. based on rules and laws they do. So there's this knowledge base that they have, by the way, your audience is developing this knowledge base. They're starting to learn about where I have someone who comes and they have 45 years of not knowing about their ADD. They don't have that knowledge base and they're playing catch up. Right. So continuing to build that knowledge base, apply that knowledge base to these kind of, kind of the weird, the weirdness of ADD because it is weird. It like, it doesn't make sense yeah. how it shows up. It's like, you know, how is it you can have so much, you know, focus over here, but you don't have it over here? How come your bike is spotless and clean, but your book bag is, you know, like a black hole? How is that possible? Right. right? It doesn't make sense to the neurotypical brain. But having this sort of allowing for curiosity to live in that gap. Mm -hmm. how, is a, how does a scientist... And they can't explain something, they don't get frustrated, right? What they do is they get curious and then they develop experiments. And going back to this, what can be very helpful is to sort of acknowledge the drama, the emotion, but to kind of go to the process place, like back to your example of washing clothes, right? To be curious about the actual processes at work and develop experiments there to, to really generate accurate data as opposed to opinion and then, you know, kind of the, the deep-seated beliefs that come out, right? The evaluation or judgment. We just got to watch out for that stuff. I was talking to a client about uh, she wanted to work on systems. Mm -hmm. right? It's like, I need help with my systems. Well, systems are just a representation of these processes that are work, time, right? We develop systems to represent our interaction with time. Right. And so I think that, again, often people with ADD are focused on systems and tools, and that's important, but to look at what are the underdriving mechanisms at work? Because that's what happens with the breakdowns connected to ADD around managing and regulating these key elements that are, you know, these executive function elements around managing time, managing task, managing, regulating emotion. Yeah. But when we start to kind of dig in around like, what are the processes at play? What's your process for determining a priority? What's the practice here? People think about systems and, oh, if I just had the right system, but really if you get in there like a scientist and experiment and tinker mm -hmm. and and what's the practice to hone that craft and learn from it so when i do my workshops my sort of adhd essentials patented workshop i guess is two hours long because nobody wants to listen to me talk for more than two hours and i spend like an hour and a half on all of the underlying stuff and there's about a half an hour of here's some systems and tips and strategies which is really why everyone's there and I sprinkle them, I sprinkle some in the other hour and a half, but most of it is like, this is what time wisdom is. And this is what time blindness is. And this is the organizational stuff. And this is what dopamine's doing and all of those root ADHD stuff that makes ADHD so weird. And so when we get to the systems and the strategies, they make sense. There's something to put them on as opposed to, 
I need a system to get me out of the house on time. It's like, well, I can't really give you that because I don't know why you're not getting out of the house on time in the first place. I can guess and I'll probably be right, but you got to tell me where the breakdown is. And if you can tell me where the breakdown is, you probably can find some solutions on your own. And I probably have a couple that you haven't thought of, but you're completely right. Understanding the underpinnings of all of that is what you need to put the system on top of. Right. And again, that's a way ADD can show up. And, and it's also a societal thing. We have been groomed to think that there's a, there's a quick fix, right? There's a pill, there's a system, there's a tool, right? There's a tool that I haven't thought of that if I just apply this tool or this system or this approach or this hack, <laughs> I will, you know, be successful, right? With ADD, you've got to be careful about the destination thinking, if only I had this thing, then I would be successful. And it's, that's destination thinking. It's not journey thinking. This journey is, a, again, journey thinking is process thinking. Looking at this as a, a lifelong chipping away at this as you go forward with your kids to continue to do what you're doing and take the long view and not just try to close that gap completely but to limit the, the, the expanding characteristics of that gap as you go forward. And then to, to have permission to mess up and to forgive yourself when you do, right? Oh, yeah. Permission and forgiveness are huge because the fact is you're going to leave the house late. You're going to arrive someplace late. You're going to forget the thing. And your kid is going to not do their homework and they're going to have a messy room and they're going to get in an argument with their cousin. It's, it's just the way it goes, not just for people with ADHD, but for people in general. It just happens more often for people with ADHD. That permission to forgive and accept, right? The other thing is accepting the, the non-neurotypical brain, right? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with folks about kind of like this deal making of like, you know, if only I had blah, 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 right? It's kind of like this desire to get back to some definition of what normal is. And it's really to embrace what's going on so you can address it. I watched your, the thing you did with uh, Jessica on the wall, mm -hmm. um, the how-to ADD, great YouTube on your, the wall. And Thank you. Yeah, wonderful. And it's a wonderful illustration of how we will kind of manufacture things without even recognizing it, right? The, the failure of, is one brick. And then all this proliferation of additional bricks, right, around rejection or guilt or shame, Bop, 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 you know, and all of a sudden we build a little portico, you know, like boom. Right. <laughs> and that forgiveness piece, right? It's the first of all, stop producing so many bricks. You know, how do you do that? Well, part of it is this a process round forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness, acceptance. And this, again, back to the scientist and the awareness piece of like, oh, there I am. Look at, you know, in this situation. Uh, I did this, I messed up, and then, man, look at that prolific brick production system. You know, I, like, built this massive factory to produce all these bricks yep. that I'm just building to, to try to climb over, you know? And so that recognizing, I do this habit class, you know, the first thing we do with this, again, the, the, ha the class that I do for the, the ADD spouse is building new habits, right? Mm -hmm. And they're wanting to change habits, right? They want new habits. And the first thing you got to do is you got to look at the habits that are not working for you. 
right? Like brick building, wall building. Yeah. Before you can really start to do new habits, you've got to look at the habits that are not working for you in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. And even stuff that's small, right? Like language use is such a great habit to adjust because sometimes you can ask the same question in two different ways. One is useful and, and serves you the way you want it to serve you. And the other one is not serving us, making things worse. A great, a great example of, the, of this is um, when the parents come home and they see their kid and they're like, did you do your homework yet? I hate that question. Don't ask that question if you're a parent. That's not the question to ask. Because really what you're saying is, do you want to lie to me or do you want to disappoint me? Because the answer is no, I didn't do my homework yet. So if we change the question and we say, hey, how's the homework going? Or do you need any help with your homework? Or what do you have for homework? Something a little more open-ended that, that lets the kid answer something other than a yes or no question for one thing and, and doesn't feel like a gotcha. Now we're going to move a little further. And if the question is consistently, hey, how's the homework going? Or something along those lines, then the kid's going to get the message that there's an expectation that homework has been started, but that the expectation is not necessarily that it's finished. So he's more likely or she's more likely to start their homework and do what they can do. And then when mom comes home, they'll go back into it, or maybe they're still doing it when, when the parent comes home, when dad's there. But that slightly more open-ended question is much more powerful than the close-ended yes or no is your homework done? Right. And to go to that sort of, again, uh, the peering into the future, mm -hmm. right? The, we, the reason why we're parents is to, is to help launch adults, successful adults. You know, your kid will still have ADD. They'll, they'll have better coping mechanisms likely, but they'll still have the same uh, neurobiology mm -hmm. uh, when they're 30. And we are modeling for our kids all the time. And the one thing you can do for your kids now is to give them a set of questions that they ask themselves at age 30, right? Imagine that child at 30 asking open-ended questions to themselves. Just as you said, what's a good choice here? Am I making a good choice? What's a different choice? Those open-ended questions, and, and I so appreciate that you brought up the language piece because it is, it's a, that little bit of difference can really make for uh, a different outcome. And so yeah, at age 30, if they're asking open-ended, more powerful, curious questions, that's a gift. That is a skill that we want them to have at age 30. Right. So then come back to age 13, 14, 15. How do we instill that in our kids going forward? Yeah. One way that, uh, that I work with my, my parent clients a lot rather than solving the problem for the kid, rather than saying like, well, you could call your friend and get the homework from them. Ask questions that lead them in that direction because at some point, they're going to be in a situation that you can't solve for them, like a party that's full of all kinds of nonsense. Yes. <laughs> and you're their, you're their internal monologue. And if all that internal monologue does is solve problems and answer questions, then when they don't have the answers, they're not going to know what to do. But if it's asking questions, then they're probably going to get a question that's useful at that party. Like, what do I do in this situation? What resources do I have available to me to solve this problem? Those kinds of questions as opposed to, well, I can't just call my friend that my friend's at the party. Like, I got nothing. <laughs> that's another potent reason to want to make sure that we're, we're using effective questions with our kids. 
Right. And I, th I think as a, again, I'm a parent um, and I know that frustration when you sort of see the not doing happening. So then you, you do the, the do, you know, making the suggestions of do this, do that, right? Do this next. Yeah. And I used to, you know, a long time ago, I used to work with kids and I worked with college students and, and addressing these transition, transitioning from high school to college and beyond. And I make the distinction of um, way back, like in the 90s, uh, the Statue of Liberty, they were cleaning the, the exterior, mm -hmm. the copper clad, the cladding that's around her. And she was covered in scaffolding, yep. right, from head to toe, if you recall. And that analogy of uh, that, what kind of structural, structural support are you providing your kid? Are you attending to the framework, the ironwork on the inside to make her stronger? Or is it really just this, scaffolding that once you pull it down, right, there's no support. So looking at this balance of scaffolding and support, but also how to create that framework on the interior so they can go out and be resourceful, be resilient, and have some success. Yeah. Awesome. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials you'd like to leave with our audience? It can be really hard to watch a kid struggle. And it, can, and it can be very frustrating. And to first, I, I think as a parent, to give themselves a break, get some distance from the stage, you know, and away from the drama. Giving yourself a break and taking the long view with your kids. Just the fact that you're here listening to this, you're gaining a knowledge that most of my clients never got. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.